you know, I get blood work done three times a year, quite quite in depth reporting. I've got a, a pass, a blood passport, so we can we can track it over the years. You know, we use all the metrics from heart rate to your total stress scores to your critical load factor. Um, you know, again with my diet, I've used the nutritionist, um, various nutritionists over a long, long, long time. <laughs> um, you know, but then the flip side of that is, is I don't like to be ruled by them. You know, I, I think numbers, you know, data is a tool, but there's still an art to coaching. To, to get the best out of someone, to really push them, there has to be that, I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but there has to be something human between the coach and the data, how it's, because we're not, we're not robots. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm really excited to be speaking with Tim Don, British triathlete and Ironman participant, and really a, a world champion and multiple time Olympian. So for the folks that are on video right now, and you aren't familiar with Tim's story, you look great. But seven <laughs> months ago, you know, in October of 2017, you were close to death, essentially. You had broken your neck and vertebrae, a C2 vertebrae, what is called a, a hangman's fracture, because it looked like you had been hung, essentially. That's the same kind of damage. But before getting into that, I, I mean, how are you feeling? I know you just finished uh, a sub-250 Boston Marathon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, yeah, it's nice to be back home in Colorado, in Boulder. Yeah, the weather, the sun's out. Did a great bike ride today. Um, yeah, 120 kilometers um, up super high. And um, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to, to getting fit again and, and hopefully racing this this season if i can yeah i mean what a story journey and career i mean i i think let's perhaps start with the accident uh, talk us through it just to paint some context for the folks who you know haven't aren't familiar with your story but you were at sort of at the peak of your career as an iron man competitor you had the world record in sort of in, in the south american championship so literally at the peak of your game and then you were a couple days out from the world championships in kona and a car ran you over. Can you can you walk us through that day, that experience, and tell yeah. us that story? I mean, it was the Wednesday before the race. The race was on a Saturday. By then, most well, all the work's done. You can only do too much and overtrain. But I had some two-minute efforts on the bicycle. I woke up early, went for a nice swim in the sea, had breakfast with Franco and some, my manager and some friends, and then I rolled out at about 11 o'clock. And Kona's quite busy at that time of year just because there's so many triathletes there may be 3,000 people racing, but there's probably another, I don't know, 1,000 plus of friends, you know, vendors and sponsors and so forth. So you kind of ride on the Queen K and I was riding in the cycle lane. And once you get past the airport, it gets a bit quieter. But before the airport, there was a petrol station, a gas station on my right. And I was riding in the cycle lane in a straight line. And then a car coming towards me thought they would turn in front of me or they didn't see me or... For one reason or not, they did that. And I remember locking up on my brakes. I remember skidding. And the next thing I remember was about 20 minutes later waking up. And obviously, I'd been T-boned by the... by the. It was actually um, a utility truck because uh, they were doing some roadworks, um, road maintenance out there. Yeah. And I, rem I, I was reading the New York Times profile on you recently. And you thought it was just whiplash. You thought, hey, my neck... Is, I'm, I'm a little bit beat up, but you know I got the world championships in a, in, in a few days. Let's let's rock and roll. I mean, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you put everything into that race. And in that moment, I was more worried about my collarbone because my right shoulder was very sore. And that's a kind of classic cycling injury. And it's quite a fragile bone when you go down. And I, sure, I knew I'd hit my head and my neck was hurting. You know, I'd never broken my neck before. So I just thought, oh, it must be whiplash. But definitely, you know, probably for the first couple of hours, an hour and a half or so after the accident, it was more my shoulder that was really hurting. They x-rayed my shoulder um, when I got to hospital and they said, oh, it wasn't broken. So at that stage, I was like, well, it's a bit stiff. So maybe I can kind of just get through the swim. Maybe I, I might have to get them to change my position on the bike so I'm not as aerodynamic if I've still got whiplash. The, I think the procedure is when you have a head injury is they wanted to do a CT scan. But thank goodness everything was okay. My, my, my brain was intact, um, well, as much as it was before the accident. And, and then um, they wanted to do an MRI of my neck. And then they called in and they wanted to do another one. And at this stage, there were, you know, about, there were three nurses. One had my kind of head, one had my hips, and one had my ankles. And they'd slide me across into their MRI, you know, tunnel. And then after the second scan, all of a sudden, um, they say through the headphones, yeah, we're ready, ready to come and get you. And all of a sudden, eight nurses were, walked in. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? I'm... I'm not that much of an attraction. <laughs> and then I realized it was more serious because they were all of a sudden, I'm not saying they weren't serious, but it went from, hey, where do you come from? I love your accent to, okay, hold his ankle, his shin, his knee. You know, they really, stability was the key. And they were like, don't move. And I said, what's happened? What's wrong? And they said, and obviously they can't tell me. They had to wait, you know, for the doctor to confirm. And that's unfortunately when I found out that, yeah, I'd, uh, um, I'd broken my C2 vertebrae. So, yeah, not ideal two days before the, the biggest race when, as you said earlier, I was in the shape of my life. I was the current world record holder. Yeah, I just got third at the world champs for the half Ironman. So everything was looking good. And this but, was in um, South Africa. The, no, um, that's this year. Um, last year they were in Chattanooga in um, Tennessee. So, um, you know, I think if I hadn't have been in such good shape and, you know, hadn't have felt I don't know, good, you know, if I hadn't felt so confident within myself that I could perform to the best of my ability, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been so hard. But, you know, when you're so close to, to what could have been a, a career defining moment, winning a race of that magnitude, you know, literally changes. We're not a big sport, but it really does, you know, change your life. And phew, took a while to come to terms of not, not even being able to start. If you have a bad race or you have stomach issues or you get a puncture, at least you've been able to start the race. So yeah, that was yeah, it was pretty tough. Yeah, pill to swallow. Yeah, I, I mean, did you ever find out who was the utility truck driver? I mean, what was the emotions like? I mean, I'm just putting myself. You know, I, I can't imagine being in a spot, but I would imagine that there'd be a lot of hatred or emotion towards the driver who is so careless. Talk us through. You know, what 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 is yeah. what is Tim's head? You know, you know circa me, October. It, I genuinely have never felt like that. My wife at times has been very, <laughs> very annoyed, but we've never heard anything from the driver. I mean, there was a police report, and then everything's been handled by the insurance company. But he's never reached out to me. No, I, I I was more frustrated that this situation had happened. I mean, I was in a cycle lane. There were. Three or four thousand, at least three thousand cyclists within that tiny area. There aren't many roads in Hawaii, well, in Kona. So you know, everyone knows there's there's new signs put up for two weeks before the race saying, "Be careful, let extra cyclists." For me, it was more frustration and disappointment than actual anger and resentment to the driver. You know, and and initially, I, I guess I was, you know, you're just dealing with the 
the practicality of, you know, at first they said, oh, well, you know, we want to give you some pain meds. And I said, well, I can't have any because I've got a race in two days. And they're, <laughs> they're kind of going, well, and I said, well, you know, I think it's just whiplash and my shoulder now we know is not broken, my collarbone. So there's so much going on in your head. The, the last thing on, on my mind was, you know, the driver. For me, you know, when they really started saying, can you feel your toes? Are they tingling? You know, have you lost bladder control yet? And I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, why are they asking me these questions? You know, they kept on um, testing my reflexes down my legs. And that's when I kind of I realized it was ever so serious. But then again, you're not really thinking about the why you're just thinking I was I'm very practical. I was just thinking, OK, what do we do? This is not my field of expertise. Whatever you guys say, you know, this is what I'm going to kind of do. And I was lucky. My um, my coach was there, um, Julie, and one of my great friends who came out to watch and I trained with him, Pat and Franco, who manages me again. It's it's not like, um, you know, show me the money or anything, Jerry Maguire or anything like that. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're all very close and we all live in Boulder. So it was really great having those guys there. And I think, I think it was just, it was almost tougher on them in that moment than me emotionally, just because, you know, I guess I'm dealing with the pain, but they're looking from the outside in and going, oh dear, he's definitely not racing. <laughs> you know, the yeah. coin was flipped on its head just like that. And literally, yeah, it was how, how we dealt with it, I guess. I mean, my experience with elite endurance athletes, especially endurance athletes, are that they're some of the toughest mental warriors on, on the planet. I mean, would you say that your ability to sort of eat pain over, you know, eight, nine extended hours of, you know, pushing yourself, it, do you think that was a contributor to how quickly you bounced back from the injury i mean literally like i think again for the listeners who aren't familiar with your story this was seven months ago and you just completed a full marathon back in the groove you know training and really back in the saddle i mean where do you credit that mental resilience yeah you know i as i say earlier i'm very practical so for me you know once i'd um, flown home to colorado and i saw the specialist and they told me i had to have the halo on and obviously i didn't particularly to be honest know what a halo was but that's what they recommended and you do what the doctor says yeah can and you describe was... the halo can you describe <laughs> the halo to our, to our listeners um, medieval torture device is probably the best way to describe it um basically um there are a few options right there were you well, know fusing was... the fusing the vertebrae i mean uh, yeah, was, I, I mean, the, the, the doctor, Dr. V, he gave me three options. And um, he said, first of all, you can wear a soft collar. So you see those neck collars, but you, you are going to have some movement of your head. So, you know, the, I guess the calcification of the bone and, you know, they were very worried, not so much about the bone healing because that will heal. They were more worried about the curvature of my spine and the gaps between my vertebrae. And he said, that's not going to hold it solid. He said you could get them fused where they get two titanium bolts and fuse C1 and C2. And he said you, you, you could lose up to 50% of, of left and right and up and down. And he and I was lucky he himself was a triathlete he, as an amateur. He'd been to Hawaii and raced there. So he knew the kind of when I said, oh, I do a bit of training. He knew what a bit of training really meant. It was 30 hours, <laughs> um, 30 hours a week. And he said what I would recommend is a halo. He said it's going to give you a a 90% chance of 100% recovery. And I said, brilliant, we'll do the halo. What is a halo? And basically, the, the reason they call it a halo is it's a carbon circle that just floats around your head. And then how that is attached to your, your, your body is they drill two holes into your skull here and then two at the back. 
And then from the halo, you have these big carbon poles that go all the way down to this brace that goes down to your belly button and the same on the back. And it basically locks everything via attaching to your skull. And so it's basically a plaster cast for your neck. And literally, you cannot move unless you're moving the screws within your head. They, unfortunately, they don't put you to sleep when you have a halo. So they just give you local anesthetic. And um, again, you don't have much flesh on your forehead. So there's not much absorption of the, the local. So it's not, not something I'd recommend, you know, just um, getting it put on. I mean, when you ride your mountain bike, you tighten your seat post with an Allen key. And um, you tighten that to five Newton meters. That's the torque. And, and you can go up and down crazy bumps and it will not move. Well, the screws in my head, they were even tighter. They were up to eight. So literally they tighten this one, then the back, then the front. They have to do it equally. So it, the pressure's equal on my skull. And it's just a big titanium screw with a big nasty point on that. They just kind of, yeah, they just get an Allen key and just tighten it tight. Like a, yeah, like a wrench. And then, um, and then for the next three weeks, the neck's not that painful, really, because it, the screws are so painful. And yeah, your whole life again, you know, it's quite a big frame. It comes out here. So I couldn't wear normal clothes. I couldn't wash and shower. I had to be sponge bath. I slept, sat upright um, for three weeks in a chair because I couldn't lean back because any pressure on the brace would affect the angle of the screws, which would not be very comfortable. Um, can't wash your hair. I can't put clothes on. I've got a three-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter, so I can't help my wife with, you know, bath time, the school run. You know, I, I really don't recommend it. Go for the fusion. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like screws in your skull, and I'm sure there was, you know, chances of infection. Was it just like, you know, pussing out? I mean, this is this is like it, it, we call medieval. I mean, like the photos that are online you can we can we can show them on on the show notes i mean it looks like you have literally screws drilled in to like lock your head in place and that that's exactly what it is i mean you know three times a day my wife have to wash the screws with hydrogen peroxide for infection and then after about three and a half weeks i decided i wanted to do a bit of training and then kind of any movement kind of made them a little bit loose and i could feel some of them coming loose so i had to have them re-tightened um, and that they don't use any local. You just need to kind of like, you know, uh, bite down on something. Unfortunately, the front um, left one, every time they tighten it, it goes deeper into your skull. I had to get a CAT scan, not on my neck, because every three weeks I was getting scans on my neck just to make sure, you know, the, the, the curvature was good and, and everything was, was OK. But this time I had to get a CAT scan just on the screws because, um, yeah, they were worried if they tightened it again, it was going to pop through my head and they'd start screwing it into my brain so unfortunately i had to have a fifth screw they had to take that one out and about a centimeter to the left they had to drill a, a new hole into it into my skull as i said go for the fusion guys <laughs> in retrospect would you i mean do you regret it or like now i mean how's your recovery it looks like it's, it's imperceptible i mean look like you're completely my, my neck's fine still a bit like this <laughs> no i mean um for me and what i do if i wanted a job I had to, that was the only option. And definitely, you know, you, you put a lot of trust in doctors, even when you, you've got a cold and they say you need antibiotics, you never question that. You just, you just take an antibiotics and, you know, but I was putting not just my health, but my job, my career, my security for my family. And no, it, for me, it, it definitely, dare I say, it was worth the pain for the three months. Um, then I had, I had it on for three months and then they unscrewed it. And then I had, um, 
had a Aspen collar and a Philadelphia collar on, so quite aggressive neck collars for another six weeks. And then I had a soft collar. And then about seven weeks ago, I could, I had no, I had nothing on, no collar at all. But no, I think, um, you know, I, I kept on asking the doctor, how am I doing? You know, cause it, I, I haven't got a hundred percent function. I don't know if you can see, this is my good side and that's my bad side. That's as far as I can turn my head looking that way. So, so don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm I just, I, yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> so you can see, you know, and I said, look, when, you know, you said this and he said, well, I'm going to be honest, Tim, you're so far ahead of the curve. We don't know. Normally it takes a year to 18 months before people are ready to go again. And, but I, if I'm doing something, I'm, I'm doing it. I mean, I was getting a physiotherapy three times a week. I was getting soft tissue work because all your, I'd lost a lot of muscle mass in my chest. So we had to build that up, but we didn't want to build it up with, with training it to move in properly because I wasn't turning my head. I was turning my whole body. So I had lots of t tightness. My fascia around my muscles was locked. You know, I had lots of scar tissue around, around my neck. And again, it's quite a sensitive area, your neck. So if you have a sore quad, you can get the, 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 the therapist to really get their elbow right, in and right. kind of like iron it out. Yeah. But you've got so many things going on here and the joints, again, you, you can only, you can't really force them. You know, if you get your lower back cracked, they really put pressure and whack your leg when they bring it over your body. But you can't really do that with the neck. So, I mean, one time in physio, I blacked out because we're pushing so much that I just kind of like lost consciousness. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not perfect. I'd say the last two weeks I've had a breakthrough with swimming because obviously when I swim, I need to turn my head to breathe. So I had to do all my swimming with a special um, swim snorkel that kind of comes up here. But um, now I can do I can do most of my swimming, but only turning to the left. I, I can't can't breathe to my right. So through the recovery process, sounds like the, the physiotherapist was a big part of that. Any, did you watch anything from a nutrition perspective? Any other protocols that you experimented with through your recovery? Yeah, I mean, I mean I've been a professional triathlete since 97. So I, I've never taken more than 10 days totally off. So to have three and a half months, and I'm, not, I'm no spring chicken. You know, I, I wasn't sure what my body was going to be, but... In, I was worried I was going to put on, you know, a thousand pounds. And I think um, with, with the pain and everything I was going through, it really suppressed my appetite. <laughs> you know, obviously, when I had the halo on, I was taking, I was drink, um, drinking, eating lots of bone broth. You know, I was taking, what was it, cal calcium, magnesium and vitamin K. You know, I was taking lots of products that would make your bones strong and recover and repair quickly. We did do, when I had the halo on, we did, we decided that we can't do anything for my neck, but my body hasn't had any time off. I didn't want to start running again whenever I could and tear a calf because my calf muscles are so weak because they've just had five months. So we did lots of stability, core work. And with that, even when, even with the halo on, I had to watch what I eat. I had to up my protein intake. Yeah, just be, 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 be vigilant with that. And then, and then since then, you know, getting into training, I did lose a lot of muscle mass in my, as I said, my upper body, but also my quads. So again, I have had to do some extra gym sessions and more strength work, hill running, over gear work on the bike. And with that, your muscles become fatigued. So again, I had to up my, my protein intake. Yeah. 
I want to step back and just zoom to the history of your career. I, I think you put it right. You're no spring chicken. I mean, you're a very accomplished athlete. I mean, you competed for Great Britain, a couple Olympic games. How did you decide to be an elite endurance athlete? When you were young, did you realize, hey, like I can run faster than all the other you know, kids around the block? What were those seminal moments that, that created you today? You know, I think I was I was very lucky that I was in the right place in the right era, the right time. And it's funny you should say I was the fastest. So um, England's separated into counties, and then you try when you're at school, you try and represent your county. They take the four best from your county, and then you're raced together to become the English schoolboy champion. So I, I was the fourth best in my county, but unfortunately, I was the third best at my school because there were two great runners at my school. And then in my run, and we used to train in a run group on a Tuesday and a Thursday. This is when I was about 12, 13, 14. And then there was this other guy who, who just moved over from Somalia, who was at another school, and he joined our run group. And that's a guy called Mo Farah, who is a four-time Olympic gold medalist. He just got second in his marathon. So I was, I was just embedded in endurance sport. And I lived in West London, and and there was a, a famous park called Bushy Park. And all the Kenyan athletes back in the 90s that used to race the European circuit for distance running, they would base themselves in in that in my town, Teddington. So straight from the off go, I had all these amazing runners around me. And then there was a small swimming pool that was open air, which is very rare in England because it gets quite cold. And there was a small triathlon club. And there's a guy five years older than me called Spencer Smith, who in... 92 and 94 was the world champion and he was in the same swim squad as me you know I mean he was he was in the same triathlon club and I remember you know I was a good runner but I realized seeing the talent that I was training with I couldn't I couldn't go to the Olympics as a runner I couldn't compete with these guys and you know I remember one day this guy Spencer he turned up in his convertible Mercedes he undid the boot got out this fluorescent pink bike with these funky wheels and I thought that's what I want to do. And then I did my first triathlon and I just really enjoyed it. I mean, to mix three sports together. And now you don't even say that it is one sport, you know, in itself. And yeah, I, I represented Great Britain as a youth, as a junior in 1998. I was a junior world champion. And that really kind of springboarded me to be able to support myself as a professional you know, ever, ever since then. Was that the key event that you realized, hey, I could be the best in the world in this? Obviously, you get a lot of data as you, you know, c compete and, and realize the numbers. I mean, when did you decide, hey, I can make this my career? You know, I, I, I think we all dream and I dreamed that I could do that 1996, 1997. But there's a practical side. I had a part-time job. I'd, I'd finished my, my schooling and I'd taken a gap year before university. And my parents desperately wanted me to go to university. And I realized that the only way I could not go to university and be a professional was if I was the, the best in the world. And I had a bit of bad luck that year. I, I did the European Championships, which are, are, are you know quite a big deal in Europe. And the night before the race, someone decided to steal my bicycle. So um, I ended up racing the next day on a borrowed bicycle, which wasn't the right size. It wasn't. So, and I got second. And I was like, you know, my dad picked me up from the airport and he's like, oh, great race. But, you know, when are you going to fill these forms out for university? And I said, well, look, if I don't win the world champs, I won't go to university. If I do win them, we'll throw the sail in the wind and see what happens. And I thought, God, what did I just say? And then um, I did. I mean, I then I, 
Um, that was an early season. Then I had some good races and I would always race as a professional, like in the senior ranks. But then I'd, for the world champs, I'd come down and race as a junior. And then, um, yeah, the, the, the junior world champs were in Switzerland in a place called Lausanne. And um, yeah, I, I won the race. And at the same event in 1998, they also announced that it was going to be an Olympic sport for the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And I think the combination of being a world champion, it gave me that boost for sponsorship and the fact that it was going to be an Olympic sport. Um, we have a funding system like you do for, you know, cycling, rowing in America and England in most of the major countries. And all of a sudden we were eligible. So there was a training camps, there's more science involved, more from looking at our diets to where we trained, why we trained, altitude and so forth. And I was, again, it was, you know, if I'd have won two years earlier, I, I wouldn't have had that support. But I had two years to go and I managed to qualify for the Sydney Olympics where I finished 10th and I was the, myself and a Spanish guy, we were the two youngest guys in the triathlon competing. Very cool. Uh, you bring up an interesting point that I want to touch upon the science component. So some athletes, I would say more animals, just running on instinct. And other athletes are very, very quantitative, very, very scientific. They track everything, the HRV, their macronutrients, their different blood metrics. You know, what's your thought on that personally? And then how has that changed in the sport? I mean, 2000 is 18 years ago. I mean, and I know that Ironman has 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 exploded in popularity, and, and triathlons have exploded in popularity since then. So oh, I'm curious to touch upon those those two aspects. You know, what kind of you know technical versus instinctual athlete are you, and how has that sport evolved? Oh, how how has it evolved? Uh, massively. I couldn't, you know, as you said, it's gone from the dark ages to like the future to the Jetsons, and I I would describe myself as very balanced and right down the middle. You know, when the gun goes, you need to make those smart decisions. But to get to that position, you need to train smart. If you've got a Ferrari, you're not going to put the cheap oil in it from, you know, you're going to do your research. And in 1998, I trained at altitude. I was already training with power, which back in the, you know, that was unheard of back then. And that was all through my coaches. I'd always surround myself with what I guess I would call a cell of core people that I could bounce ideas off. They could take the lead and do things. You know, I get blood work done three times a year, quite quite in depth reporting. I've got a, a pass, a blood passport, so we can we can track it over the years. You know, we use all the metrics from heart rate to your total stress scores to your critical load factor. Again, with my diet, I've used a nutritionist, um, various nutritionists over a long, long, long time. <laughs> but then the flip side of that is, is I don't like to be ruled by them. You know, I, I think numbers, you know, data is a tool, but there's still an art to coaching to, to get the best out of someone to really push them. There has to be that. I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but there has to be something human between the coach and the data, how it's because we're not robots. You know, there are times when I've walked on pool deck for a hard swim and I thought I'm exhausted and my coach has got me up for it and I've had an amazing set. And there are times when I've thought, I don't feel too bad, but my coach can see from all the data, this is not the day to push, just do an easy swim. And it's the same with diet. You know, I do watch what I eat, especially eight to 10 weeks leading up, you know, to a big race, but I'm not one of those guys that has a weighing scale and I'm weighing, you know, exactly this amount of this food and that food and this and that, you know, I, I have a, a very balanced, healthy diet with supplements, you know, as well with, you know, um, 
in things from multivitamins to you know protein powders and and whatnot. But um, you know, I I think it you've got to look at it holistically, and you can't you know I think having that balance has definitely kept me in 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 the sport and being at the top of the top top of the game for for so long. And in terms of the uh, you mentioned like a power meter, I guess yeah, I guess in '98 probably there weren't that many power meters for you know this is for the you know the the, the amount of wattage you're producing on a bike. I mean, I'm curious. I mean, now you see sort of amateurs essentially with all sorts of gizmos and gadgets. Is that changing the sport or is it still you know a little bit? I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on all the all the paraphernalia of, of triathlons. No, it's definitely changing the sport. I mean, the times are coming down every year, not just for the professionals, but for the amateurs. They're training smarter. They're able to use their body better. You know, we used to call some amateurs weekend warriors. They'd have an easy Thursday, Friday, then Saturday they'd do a five hours training, Sunday five hours, have two days off, and your body can't take that load and absorb the training, and you can't you know, have enough recovery within that weekend. But now through, you know, um, you know, training programs like training peaks where you can record all your data, you know, you can see the flow people. I mean, there are, if you Google triathlon coach, cycling coach, running coach, you, there's the choices. It's quite a bit of a cottage industry out there. It is absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, the good coaches use the data, but they're not ruled by it. And, and I think for the amateurs, people are having now you know when you got your bonus um you know say you're worked in the city and you got your christmas bonus like 18 years ago you might go out and buy a thousand dollar bottle of wine and a new porsche but now people are going on a sporting holiday to a to a hotel labody in the saint lucia or lanzarote in the canary islands there's some specific sports hotels you know they might buy a new race wheel or you know, get some blood work done. You know, I think the whole people's outlook on life is more healthy. And I think that therefore the athlete of those kind of like one percenters who are the dedicated trainer, they are definitely looking to invest in themselves. And they're like, well, I want to beat my friend or I want to go faster. And it's not a case of being tough and just fighting through, you know, sometimes to go fast, you have to go slow. And I definitely think that side of thing has really evolved. Before it was just the toughest, but now I think it's definitely more the smartest trainers. That yeah. Any specific, are. you know, tool or device or metric that you think is worth highlighting in, in this conversation? You know, I think, I guess in terms of, you know, our conversations with different, uh, you know, military operators and athletes, HRV, heart rate variability as a sign for recovery seems to be relatively popular i'm curious anything in your experience that sort of stands out as things to to look at yeah i think i think first of all you need to record you know you need a a period of time you can't just do it for a week you need everything you know you need it for four or five months then you get a you know for me we've got seasons of data so we can really see the flow and trend of how my body reacts to certain stimulus whether it's you know, speed work or endurance. But no, I think definitely on the cycling, it's definitely the power meters. And it's not 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 the data, but it's how we can interpret that data. And and I know that, that there are a few companies that make power meters for running, but we don't have the software to interpret that of the understanding. It's just raw data. And I, I definitely, I use my heart rate for, for, for all my cycling and all my running. And we always take my resting heart rate if I'm under the weather. Um, 
And again, the swimming pool is so simple because it is 25 meters long. Everything is quantifiable. You know, we can see the speed, the pace. I can count my stroke. So we like to use everything, but definitely heart rate and power, if used correctly as tools, not as religious, you know, because there are some days when it's the last rep of the, of, of the group, you know, 20 times or so, and I five times 10 minutes and you feel good on the last one, then you know, for me, with my experience, it is worth pushing it. Or if I don't feel so good, maybe I back off the last one. And I think that's when you can't become a slave to data. And it's that balance and having a coach or having the mind yourself to, you know, as I say, it's easy to train hard. It's simple. You just flog yourself every day. But it's so much harder to kind of train easy. I mean, you'll break yourself, right? You'll break yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's interesting. I think, you know, a lot of our community members, our listeners are probably what they would describe as, you know, biohackers. They are all about quantifying their own biometric data. And when they're training, you know, going within, you know, between the, you know, not surpassing the lactic acid threshold they're not burning themselves out too, too quickly. So, you know, uh, and I think a big aspect upon this is what you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is nutrition. Curious to hear your thoughts on the different macro ratios that people are talking about. So, the ketogenic diet has been talked about a lot in the endurance communities for not, you know, having to be glucose dependent, not hitting the wall, especially for, you know, an Ironman, which is, you know, seven, eight, nine plus hours competition. There's this notions that, you know, nutrition is the fourth sport of triathletes. I'm curious to, to hear your experience on, have you played with the ketogenic diet? Is it something that is interesting? What's the latest in nutrition strategy for you? No, for me, it's it's kind of keep things simple. You know, you through small trials and errors, we find things that work. Um, and I'm a believer of a balanced diet. You know, I'm not going to some of my friends, they have a bullet coffee and they go and ride for six hours on water. Well, I, I just did a four hour ride. You know, I had uh, two bottles of carbohydrate drink and I had some energy gels as well. And as soon as I came home, I had my shake and then I had a sandwich. Um, you know, as I say, it's that, especially with children, you, you just get it's a bit crazy, <laughs> um, you know, of balancing it all. But no, and I think there's no set diet that is going to make everyone a better athlete, you know. And it's the same with, there's no one running shoe that's going to make you faster. It's, you know, horses for courses and different, I've got a very slow metabolism, but people, yeah, I think, I think there's, um, there's so many variants and the trends change so many so often that you know once you are doing if you read all of is it dr tim noakes's stuff from back in the day to what they're talking about now and then you throw in some in between as being from the crazy high fat diets and so forth you know it's kind of like almost goes full circle every so often and i'm you know i and again we can't afford to try something too extreme for a long period if it's going to have a negative effect leading into races or a season, because, you know, when we race, we have to, you know, we have to get on the podium, you know, make prize You're money. To win. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to a degree, that's why I've got my coaches. They kind of do the research more in detail than me. They wouldn't, you know, I can't, I can't look at every aspect of my performance, my which helmet to wear because one's faster than the other. You know, they, they say, these are the two fastest, which one's comfortable. They would say, you know, this is a, um, when I talk to Kaiser, my nutritionist, she goes, you know, at the moment, I really want you to, you should be having lots of more natural fats, so lots of nuts, avocado, fish oils, you know, and I, I'm not going to say, but what about this? What, you know, I, I totally trust these people who are kind of like in my cell, in my network, 
Um, but yeah, no, diet's an interesting one, I think, because it is the fourth discipline, but I don't know. I would say it's not not as big a discipline as the other three. Okay. Or you, uh, yeah. you, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's you not, can't eat your way to victory, right? No, absolutely. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, but then psychologically, if you do something and it works, like I'm sure there are some players, you know, they don't shave their beards and things like that. I'm sure there are some that at half time always have a Twinkie or something like that. And you're like, well, that's, that's what, you know, that's not really the nutritionally, you know, soccer in England, my father was heavily involved in football, um, in the premier league, the top flight. And at half time, they'd have a cup of tea and an orange. Well, now they're having energy drink, you know, they're having like shakeouts of their legs and, you know, before a marathon, everyone would have a steak. Well, now no one's having a stake. You, you know, I think there's, um, yeah, it's changed so much. It really has. But I think the data is getting stronger. And I think you're actually touching, you know, a good point that I think that a lot of people in the keto community don't realize is that carbs are really efficient fuels. I mean, if you are, are trying to, you know, burn through, you know, and pass through the lactic acid threshold, you need carbs. And I think, um, there's, I think as you say, there's like different variants for different styles of training and different styles of, of, of competition. So I agree with you that there's no one size fits all. It's just like, how do you personalize your training protocols, your diet, your actual style and, and, and what your genetic makeup is and, and build something tailored to your personal performance. I mean, w- one point that I wanted to tease about was that you start off at the Olympic distance, which is, you know, quite a bit shorter than the half Ironman and the full Ironman. Here's to hear your, your your trajectory as you started gravitating towards longer and longer endurance races. You know, I think, um, unfortunately, age catches up with you. And it's a bit like track and field. You get the top guys running the mile, then 3,000 meters, then 5,000, then 10. And as they get a bit older, you lose that speed. And then you go to the road, half marathon and marathon. And it's similar to triathlon. Up until 2012, I raced the short course, which... For us, was a, was an hour forty five, um, and it involves a lot of travelling. I mean, I would literally probably spend for seven or eight months of the year on the road. You know, from training camps to the first races in New Zealand, the second ones in America. Then you're back to Japan, and then you're to Europe. Then and with a young family, and I always wanted to have a go at Kona. I really did, and um, I, I was I wasn't getting any younger, and I thought I could do an, 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 an and in the short course, everything's a four year cycle because you're kind of trying to qualify for the next Olympics, trying to qualify for the next. And at 2012, I thought, you know, there's a good chance I, I won't make Rio. Now's a, you know, I'm young enough, driven enough, because again, that's just as important as your, your physical well-being. Um, let's, 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 my, I only had a young family at the time, let's move to America and work with 70.3s. And then from there, you know, try a few Ironmen. And then that's kind of like how I progressed, you know, through the, through the stages and now I can see the younger athletes you know there's a couple of them the current Olympic champion and silver medalist they've started to do some half Ironman because they're get, you know not getting any younger and um, you can see the natural migration of kind of like of, of what your body will allow you to do to stay at that top flight yeah what is your sense I mean is it the sense that endurance doesn't fade as quick or do you think that given just the amount of miles you've put that your endurance actually improves as you just spent more and more miles on the road. What is your sense on that? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what it came down to is, is um, when I was 23, I didn't have to stretch before a hard run. I just put my shoes on and go. 
But now you've got to look after your, you know, my, my body's been through, been through <laughs> a few miles. So, you know, and you do lose that speed and, and it's the, the intensity of the training. My body, I could do the same intensity as I was getting older, but I'd need more recovery. I couldn't do them twice a week. It was only, you know, once every 10 days. Um, and you need to do these key, very intense sessions because we are running and riding and swimming very fast. But with endurance, once I changed the training, it was more about how long can you go as close to your threshold as possible. And, you know, you've got all that speed in your legs. So you've kind of you can tick that box. Now it's just make yourself as efficient as possible. So if you need to, you can still access that speed, but not every two minutes, which is what you used to do. So I think for me, it was a case of I realized my body couldn't take the pounding of that very intense VO2 max work kind of like level four, level five, day in, day out. Well, I can, today I went for a four hour bike ride at 9,000 feet and I know if I recover well, um, I did a run off the bike as well. Tomorrow I've got a hard run, but again, it's a hard run for the distance I'm competing at, which is a half marathon and a marathon, not 10,000 meters. So, you know, I think naturally your body kind of told, my body told me, if you keep doing this, you're going to break down. <laughs> and the worst thing for an athlete is being injured. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of, I think, just folks in, 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 our, in our company here that, you know, a couple amateur Ironman, half Ironman triathletes here and like injury prevention. I mean, injury, you're out for three months, two months, and your progression just stops completely. So was Boston the first event that you, you came back on or – or the Boston yeah Marathon. yeah no I mean I I love putting on a race number I just love it I love racing and I realized I couldn't do a triathlon maybe July if, if things go well and the opportunity you know came up to run Boston I obviously I can't do a cycle race because you know it doesn't have that same allure you, you watch the professionals but there's nothing for amateurs and the same with swimming and um yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The opportunity came up, and I thought, well, I definitely, I definitely won't run a PB or you know a best time. I, in fact, I've never run a standalone marathon. But for me, it was just the fact that I could put my put a number on and compete against myself, and and it worked out quite well because it was just it was six months and four days after I broke my neck, and it was it was very much for me drawing a line of my recovery process and now focusing on. Well, if all these guys are winning races, when the gun goes and I'm on the start line, they're not going to care about my story. So I was really, it was really for me a way of changing my mindset. I'm still obviously, you know, doing lots of rehab for my neck and physio. But for now, for me, I still have to train now 25 to 30 hours a week. And yeah, it was kind of like a good transition phase for me. Uh, I would have liked nicer weather because it was minus one degree centigrade. Ask, how was Boston? Oh. It was like the worst weather on record oh it was the uh, first time i've been there an amazing city and i've got so much respect for everyone that came and watched the race because um it's a point-to-point -point race so it can be quite good if you have a tailwind but we had a headwind with driving rain and the evening before it was snowing so it was ice cold rain and um yeah i mean it was just it was just brutal i mean after I finished, my shoes looked brand new because there was so much standing water. It's as if I just had a bath with all my clothes on. <laughs> I think I should, probably should have worn my wetsuit for the race. <laughs> oh, it was yeah, brutal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was 
uh, a good feeling to get a first big race and, and, and lock that in. So what's on the agenda for the rest of 2018? I mean, it sounds like you're going to be, you know, trying to get back to, to peak, you know, as close to peak position as possible, hopefully surpass what, you know, get back on it. What, what's, yeah. what's, what's in the works? I mean, that's, that's the goal. I mean, now I've got a big block of about six weeks of head down training. Um, I'm going to go back to Brazil. I'm going to go back to Brazil at the end of May, which is where I broke the world record just to watch the race with with one of my sponsors. So that'll be quite nice just to, you know, see everyone else going through the pain. And hopefully at the end of June, I can do a half Ironman in either Costa Rica or a place called uh, Coeur d'Alene um, in Washington state, I think. And then the plan is July the 28th to either do Hamburg Ironman or Zurich Ironman, because to go to Kona again, you need to qualify and you need is it's a point system so i need to basically do those races to have enough points but I, I i would love to go to kona but i don't want to go to make the numbers up i only want to go if i can fight for a top 10 top 5 you know a, a podium spot and um my coaches believe in me and my wife does i'm very lucky so you know nothing ventured nothing gained that's that's the plan for this year <laughs> And don't get hit by a car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's an inspiring story. I mean, most people can't do Iron Man at perfect health, and I think just coming back and, and, and going through that that trial and tribulation and stronger than ever with your men, your mind just switched on, I think is just super inspiring. How can our listeners follow your story? How can they find you? Twitter, social. What are what are some things that you want to shout out here? Yeah, I'm on um, Instagram and Twitter. It's um, Try the Don. Um, and then also Facebook, Tim Don Fast Coaching. And then also, actually, um, um, one, I, we've just finished making a documentary for my last um, six, six, six and a half months. And the trailer's out online. I think the link's in my Instagram bio, but you can go on YouTube and it's called The Man with the Halo. And then um, on the 28th of May, which was when I broke the world record, the, it's going to be released um, as a like a, a, a short documentary over, I guess from hero to zero and on on the way up again. Um, so yeah, I, and that was quite pain. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I, I've seen it once, not, not an unedited version, and I think um, I'm hoping people will enjoy it and they can take something out of it. It's never give up. <laughs> we'll definitely check it out. Thanks so much, Tim. Cheers. No worries. Bye bye. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna Subs, to cover. So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to you know what's going on at human you know what products are we working on what r&d are we working on what customers what are the feedback from the keto nester happy to address any and all questions so shoot us an email at podcast at human.com and we'll once we have a big bank of questions we'll do a special episode as always please subscribe for future episodes of the human enhancement podcast Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast.human.com and we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, our acute focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.